to the great work radio program. The great work radio and blog are features of Jesse Ward's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. This is episode four of the Charming Intentions series on the great work. Hello and welcome to the Great Work radio program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a PhD candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two-day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. Adele Gardner of the University of Bristol gave a revealing talk entitled Art, Invocation, and Alchemy, the Tarot Paintings of Lady Frida Harris. Lady Frida Harris was a close associate of Aleister Crowley in his later years, and she painted and designed an entire tarot deck according to his specifications. Great. Um, well, I'll say the speaker. I'll try and get it right this time. Is, um, Adele Gardner, who uh, teaches at the education department at the University of West England, whilst also carrying out a doctoral research at Bristol University. And this time it really is art, invocation, and alchemy. <laughs> Please join me welcoming Adele. Thank you. Ah, now I'm going to place myself here under a light so that I can see, so if I'm not directly in front of you, please forgive me. I'm going to start off with a quotation from Lady Frida Harris. At it again tomorrow. Have you ever realised how much I have given up for this work? Everything I possess, and now I am a nothing in a wilderness. Yours very tired, F.H. This is an extract of correspondence that passed between Frida Harris and Crowley while she was working on the Fourth Tarot deck. And I'm going to be talking about the not only the historical struggle of the woman artist, but also how that plays out within a cult practice as well, because I see the thought of tarot very much, not just as paintings, but also Harris's actual involvement with a cult practice. So if we have a look here, we can see from the changes in the images, we go there from the red lion, the white image and then we see that on the as it is on the lover's card and then when we look again on the art front we see that this has gone through. I'm going to take these two images is symbolic in many ways of the old chemical practice which occurred through the combination of Crowley and Harris working together to actually be able to 
produce these 78, well, she produced well over 78 paintings. We have 78 cards in the tarot pack, but she, she actually painted many of these images far more than one time. So the historical struggle of the woman artists, like that of the female poet, has been well documented. But what has been less widely discussed is the position of those women, such as Lady Frieda Harris, whose artistic legacy confirms their deep engagement with occult practice. As well as being the wife of a well-known liberal politician, Frieda Harris was initiate of the Ordo Templar Orientis and had been an active supporter of the women's suffrage movement. It is important to consider these three states of being because they illuminate the tensions that existed in her life and support us in gaining a better understanding of how this particular woman actively engaged in occult practice. Harris is one of the few people who successfully collaborated with the often temperamental and demanding occultist Alistair Crowley. Harris's sense of self was strong and she refused to martyr herself in the service of Crowley, though her commitment to bringing the Thoth Tarot into being was formidable and unwavering. To succeed in the task of providing the world with an illustrative account of Crowley's magical system, Harris overcame many obstacles, not the least of which was the daily traumas and shortages associated with the Second World War. While the making of art was central to Harris's existence, this paper will focus on the series of paintings now collectively known as the Thoth Tarot. Harris started in the 1930s and completed in the 1940s. Some brief mention will be made also of her Masonic tracing boards, painted because these serve as evidence also of her interest and involvement in co-masonry, theosophy, as well as Crowley's Thelema. Crowley's maxim, do what they will is the whole of the law, has often been misinterpreted as a license for the individual to do whatever they wish and damn the consequences. Whereas far from calling the brethren to a life of senseless hedonism, Crowley was asking the individual to know themselves well enough to establish what was their true purpose in a particular incarnation, and was then to expend all the energy that they had in fulfilling that. While Crowley must be applauded for his ability to synthesise Eastern and Western systems of philosophical, sorry, philosophical, mystical and magical and religious thinking and practice, his lack of patience with those who failed to develop within the system was rarely tempered by any understanding of the daily demands of everyday life. Unlike Crowley, Harris appears to have glimpsed the future in a way that he could not, and in doing so produced a complex but tireless series of tarot paintings which anticipated the resurgence of interest in all matters of the occult which would occur post-1960s. Harris was not afraid to tell Crowley that his books were too complex or that his language was too archaic for the average person in the street. The Book of the Law, which Crowley received in 1904, states that the law is for all. But communicating clearly with the masses was not a particular strength of Crowley's, and through the medium of modern art, Harris created a visual portal through which Crowley's Thelema could be expressed and explored. While Harris has been criticised for a lack of occult knowledge, she must also be praised for intuitively creating art that would respond well to mass production and also stand the test of time. Now, I'm going to come to a quotation here from Harris, 
I do not think that the ritual of magic is much good to me. I seem to have to draw everything I want to understand. So here we have this idea of a female saying, because ritual magic has often been seen something which has been predominantly male. So this business of engaging in artistic practice to actually evolve magical practice is very, very clear here, I think. While many women shared aspects of their life with Crowley, he was essentially a man among men, and it is unlikely that he fully appreciated the balancing act that was Lady Harris's life. Discussions that took place between <coughs> Harris and Crowley with regard to the card known as adjustment are illustrative of the <coughs> tensions that existed between them, tensions that can perhaps be best explained with reference to the hierarchies that exist in human society. On one level, Crowley was the Magnus, and Harris's pupil, but within mainstream society, the hierarchies were reversed because Harris, unlike Crowley, maintained access to polite society and moved among those who mattered in a way that he no longer could. The biographies of Crowley make it very clear, whilst more or less anyone who was anyone knew Crowley, and he communicated with many people on many different levels. Public acknowledgement of a relationship with Crowley was often something which people were reluctant to engage with because of the reputation that he had. Now, if we pause here and look at an image of a card which was produced um, under the auspices of the Golden Dawn, and we see there the symbolism, and then we move forward and we look at the very, very different approach that Harris brought to creating the Thoth Tarot. The whole aspect of using um, synthetic perceptive geometry, the use of colour, the use of imagery, also the use of sexual Im imagery, which was very strong in some of the tarot, is very much that call towards the new eon what Crowley had actually said, that he'd called um, a new time in magical existence, and these cards seem to clearly illustrate that in many ways. Now, I think it's probably time that I introduced an image of Frida Harris here. As we can see, she was born in 1877. She lived until 1962. Um, she took the name Frida, but Marguerite was the name that she was born with. Now, there we are. I'll leave that quotation up there for a little while. <coughs> now, if we go down here slightly. Much has been made about the relationship between Harris and Crowley. It's very well acknowledged that she was a magical pupil of his, that she paid him a stipend and that their relationship, as well as co-collaborators on the Thoth Tarot, was also very much, um, mag she was a magical student. But looking at how we go forward here to look at the alchemical processes and also what she brought to the process of devising a tarot, which could be seen on many, many different levels. The idea of producing images that were otherworldly, so not just figures that related in any clear way to human forms, but going beyond that 
the whole act of invocation and alchemy is made very, very clear in these images. Now, if I go through here and go forward. Now, there we have the adjustment card there. The adjustment card was important to Crowley because it reflected one of the major changes to attributions of the tarot that he had made under the Golden Dawn system. Justice was numbered 9, not 8, which according to Crowley's system was wrong. In his role of prophet of the new aeon, Crowley's interpret interpretation differed to that of Arthur Edward Waite. And Crowley also made links between this card and the Book of the Law. While the correspondence that passed between Harris and Crowley acknowledged the advanced magical knowledge that Crowley had, it should not be presumed that she was merely the sort of artist ventriloquist dummy. She took here, I mean, she took, she talks in the letters about taking from Beardsley, the whole design, we have the Alpha and the Omega there, so we have this total idea of the cards being a map of the universe. Now, if we go here, so when we look at, for example, the book of Revelation, I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And how this is portrayed in a very, very surreal approach to giving something which is visually a gateway through to something which is very, very different than what one would have normally associated with the tarot cards around that time. Now, the, when we look at here, going through here and talking about, I mean, a conversation here between that Lon Milo Duquette had talked about in his book on the Thoth Tarot, and what they talked about was they were talking about how images were actually represented and how Crowley's magical system could be represented as a piece of art. And looking at this and also talking about the relationship of women, talking about here what was known as the woman satisfied. So her discussion about that was, do you think there ever was a woman satisfied with what a smirk, smirk would she greet the dawn? So that whole idea of male and female and how they engage with sexuality was something which is also quite evident in the cards. Now, if we look at the difference in the artwork, for example, of Hamlet, Coleman, Smith. So, if we go back, sorry, there we are. Now I shall get there. I shall get there eventually. That's it. It's gone a little bit big on me. Sorry, but you can see my general meaning, can't you? There is an air there that while there is an awful lot of um, complex imagery, the actual nature of those cards are very, very different indeed <coughs> compared to the, the images that Harris has here. Sexuality evidently there around the breasts and everything else, which is quite clearly acknowledged. And here again, when we have the cards. So that whole nature of how things actually play out. So that idea of the Philosopher's Stone that we've picked up on many times and how that plays out within the universe 
the whole creative principle of the universe and how that is developed to take them forward. Now, if I go through here as well, it's no secret that those who collaborated with Crowley found him at best difficult and more often than not exasperating. Harris's ability to work collaboratively with Crowley for five years and sustain the commitment while the country and where they both live was ravaged with war and disrupted all aspects of daily people's lives was actually a great tribute to her engagement with magical practice. I think it's rather important to consider here whether Harris's art can actually be seen in very much the same way as Spare's was, where that whole thing of it is a magical act, not just an um, artistic creative process. Now, I would say the collaborative working that took place between Harris and Crowley was in many ways a practical illustration of the alchemical process. <laughs> So looking at that, Harris continued with her great work despite the difficulties that it presented for her because she took the gold from Crowley, she took those nuggets from him that were his knowledge, his ability to synthesise a very complex system. Harris, you know, Crowley once remarked that Harris was devoted to him and in many ways, as well as an artistic collaboration between these two, there was a great on those cards and it's clearly there on the 
Ace of Discs is the six, 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 which was the mark of the beast which Crowley took. Um, I think I'd like to finish this talk by let's just go back a little bit by looking at this. This is what Harris said. The tower is a record of the spiritual journey of man and the rituals by which, at each stage, those capable of understanding the signposts are admitted to initiation. So we very much see there an acknowledgement of that process of the initiate going through the 22 major trumps as a process of developing and that inner alchemy that would actually take place. Harris ended her, well, her life ended in India. Percy Harris died in around, died in 1952. Um, we know from that the marriage was most certainly um, not one without its tensions, but she moved and lived for the rest of her days on um, a houseboat in Sringar in <laughs> India. Her son's memoirs, um, Sir Jack Harris, um, has talked about, he lived in New Zealand, very successful businessman, and he talked about his mother, and he talked about the fact that she was psychic, as far as he was concerned, and he also claims that she visited, visited him after she had died, because he'd gone to India and had a headstone laid. So we're looking here at an artist who has been very much um, seen, I mean, the whole term, the artist executant, executant which Crowley was the name that Crowley gave to Harris, in many ways has denied, I think, the originality and magical practice that Frida Harris brought to the Thoth Tarot. So I think, and hopefully, we're reaching a time when what she has given to the art forms, which are known as the Tarot, is beginning to be acknowledged. So thank you very much. Have you ever realised how much I gave up for this work? And I wonder what she was referring to there. And if there's something about this kind of polite society that might be appalled by. Well, I definitely think so. I think in many ways her life must have been on a knife's edge because, um, on one hand, she had the, the, the life of the political wife, which she was definitely active in. On the other hand, she had the, the life of the artist which was passionately important to her. I mean, being able to create her work, unfortunately, you know, we have the Thoth Tarot, we also have the Masonic tracing boards, um, which are in the Museum of Masonry, but what we don't as yet necessarily have is a complete understanding of where... I mean, Percy Harris talked about her painting usually for 12 hours a day. So that certainly shows that there must be somewhere out there, if it survived, a considerable body of work. Um, while things, while more is being uncovered, 
um, there must be an awful lot out there which is hidden somewhere, if you see what I mean. So she was somebody who took her art very seriously. She was also somebody who took her own spiritual development very seriously. So we can see that she was certainly somebody who moved through all sorts of different um, spiritual systems. Now, I don't think that we can look at her as being a spiritual tourist, if you see what I mean. Somebody who pops into this and pops into that and then disregards it. I think it was a very, very genuine desire to understand her own place within the universe. It was very clear with that. Can we take any questions on the yeah, it's uh, on question and understanding we was I'm not really into the topic of tarot cards and the history of tarot cards, but Grayson right that she sort gave tarot cards which are adjusting to the system probably had like final form, you know, still printed today or are they still you know, are they still Yes, the the cards are freely available and, you know, they're easy to get hold of. What Crowley did is he wanted to find, well, my understanding of it, he wanted to create something which would demonstrate the balance within the universe. So it's very, very important to get, because we're looking at astrology, which is there, we're looking at the Kabbalah, we're looking at alchemy, we're looking at all different types of... Um, magical processes being combined into, into symbolic representation. So it was very, very important to him that there was a harmony between those, how these symbols were represented and how it would play out in the 78 cards that you actually had, particularly within the 22 key cards. So very much around making sure that the correspondences that may have previously been given that under his system, he questioned whether or not they were actually positioned in the right way to clearly show um, the harmony within the universe, particularly with, um, in an astrological way. Yeah, but the question was whether she was, was she the only person illustrating, uh, illustrating cards in, according to his system or according to his books? Uh, did he employ or were there other artists, you know? As far as, as far as I am away, where, no, there wasn't. No, so as far as I'm aware, she, she was, was the artist, yes, you know, she, she was the artist who worked with him. Imagery. I mean, you've raised quite an interesting point because Crowley was, in fact, um, quite a skilled artist himself. So, theoretically, one presumes he could have not only... Um, come up with, but actually effectively designed his own tarot. But that working of male and female energy as well is something which has been um, quite clearly established in Crowley's work. I mean, um, many of his books have been worked collaboratively with women writers and also with, with the tarot as well. That seems to be very clear there. Are there any questions? And maybe there's one more, which is that I mean, something that we've kind of heard about uh, once or twice in passing, I think, yesterday and today, it's been about Freemasonry. Yes. But, but I'm just interested to know if there's any kind of more to be said about that, and if, um, you know, and if that was sort of marked as a significant influence here. Well, within, um, I mean, Freemasonry.
Freemasonry, many of the rituals and other things connected with Freemasonry have been adopted and utilised and worked in the magical rituals of societies such as the Golden Dawn and also by Alistair Crowley as well. So there is a strong link between those things. Now, whether... If Crowley was not a Mason, he certainly had had very, very strong links with, with Masonry. So that was, that was there and quite strongly there. And there's certainly plenty of evidence to suggest that Harris, because as we know, um, Masonry as such didn't admit women, but co-Masonry did. So it's that whole effect of how do you sort of do this so that connection with Annie Besant and so forth is, is definitely there in Harris's life and is clearly evidenced by the tracing boards and the sonic tracing boards that she... she oh, was, she friend, was she a friend of Annie Besant? Do you know, I don't know. I think it's... I would imagine that she was one of these people who would have had many links with many people. Yeah. What we she don't... was working for women suffragists, just what we don't, or at least what I'm not aware of, and I think I need to put that out there, what I'm not aware of, I'm clearly aware of the letters, and they're in the public domain, as well as in the Warburg Institute, um, that passed between Crowley and Harris. There may well also be somewhere a whole body of correspondence which clearly evidence links that she's had to other people, but I've certainly not had access to that. Right, well, please join me in thanking you now. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio program. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse War's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H dot com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program.